Well, let us continue in worship by opening our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. This morning, we're looking at verses 20, excuse me, 15 through 26. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. It's already been a wonderful Lord's Day. Considering the truths of scripture, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and our need of him. The title for this morning's sermon is the scripture had to be fulfilled. And I'm getting that straight out of verse 16. We won't read the verse to start. We will read it as we go. Let me begin by quoting words that were spoken uh, over 85 years ago, 1937. Right before his death, theologian J. Gratian Machen spoke these words, and I quote, We certainly find ourselves in the midst of a troubled world. We're living in a time of rapid changes. Less than 20 years ago, after a war that was supposed to have been fought to make the world safe for democracy, democracy almost everywhere is lying prostrate, and liberty is rapidly being destroyed. Who would have thought 20 years ago that within so short a period of time, all freedom of speech and of the press would have been destroyed in large sections of Western Europe? Who would have thought that Europe would sink back so soon into a worse than medieval darkness? America has been no exception to this decadence and liberty is being threatened. Certainly, when we take the world as a whole, we are obligated to see that the foundations of liberty and honesty are being destroyed and the slow achievements of centuries are being thrown recklessly away. Machen continues and says, in such a time as this, is there anything that remains unchanged? When so many things have proved to be untrustworthy, is there anything that we can trust? One point at least is clear. We cannot trust the church, the visible church, the church as it now actually exists upon this earth has fallen too often into error and sin. No, we cannot appeal from the world to the church. Well then, is there anything at all to which we can appeal? Is there anything at all that remains constant when so many things change? I have a very definitive answer to give to that question. It is contained in a verse taken from the prophecy of Isaiah. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. These, there are many things that change, but there is one thing that does not change. It is the word of the living and true God. The world is in decadence. The visible church is to a considerable extent apostate. But when God speaks, we can trust him and his word stands forever sure. End quote. Those words were spoken in, nine, in 1937. Clearly, the ongoing changeableness of the world is nothing new. 
Therefore, the need for an anchor remains equally urgent. So I want to follow up the words of Machen with this statement. What Christians need the most in this day and age is to return to the foundational conviction that the Bible is the unquestionable word of God and leaders who are not ashamed of it. During this 10-day period between Christ's ascension and Pentecost, Peter gave his first speech to these 120 Christians. And the very first words that came out of his mouth are of monumental significance. These words make up the foundational conviction upon which all Christians ever since have stood. It is the conviction that has emboldened believers to endure persecution, strengthened them to be patient under trial and encouraged them to live faithfully in the midst of wickedness. What is that conviction? Verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. We are about to hear one of the best defenses of the word of God out of the mouth of Peter. This reminded me of the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who said that defending the Bible is like defending a caged lion. How do you defend a caged lion? Well, you don't. You just get out of the way and you open the cage. A free lion doesn't need defending. The lion is its own best defense. Likewise, the best defense for the Bible is to let the Bible speak for itself, to let the message go out. The Bible is its own best defense and proof. In the following verses, we will understand why this is so. Peter will share with us four specific convictions he held regarding the word of God. As we will see, Peter was fully convinced, fully convinced of the absoluteness of the word of God, verses 15 and 16a, the, uh, the supernatural nature of the word of God, the power of the word of God, and the authority of the word of God. Let us consider the first conviction of Peter. God's word is absolute as shown in the necessity of its fulfillment. Read with me verse 15 and the first part of verse 16. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. As I was giving thought to these words of the apostle Peter, I could not help but think of our dear meteorologists on television and how I have often been misled by their words. Has that ever happened to you? On more than one occasion, I've been told by them, it is going to rain, carry an umbrella, the flood, is coming. And so I wait and I wait and I wait and I never see a drop. 
And yet at other times, I don't hear anything from them at all. And all of a sudden, the flood does come and I'm left thinking, I don't have an umbrella. And I say that simply to point out the fact that the words of men are bound to be inaccurate. Unlike the words of men, however, God's word, it's absolute. I use the word absolute to describe this particular conviction that Peter held regarding the word of God, because the word absolute means not qualified or diminished in any way, not having any limitations, not having any limitations. When Peter says that the scripture had to be fulfilled, he is speaking in unqualified terms. There are no limitations to that statement. There are no exceptions to that rule. What scripture says must by necessity come to pass. In this sense, then the Bible is absolute or to put it even more bluntly, nothing can stop the scripture's fulfillment. Nothing can stop the scripture's fulfillment. There are no human events, no human movements, no desires, no governments or religions that can thwart the absoluteness of God's word. It has to be fulfilled. This of course was nothing new in the mind of the apostle Peter. After all, this was not the first time that he had heard about the absoluteness of God's word. In fact, of all the disciples of the Lord Jesus, Peter would have known this truth better than anyone else. Peter had to learn about the absoluteness of God's word the hard way, as he normally did. When you read the accounts of the arrest of Jesus in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read that one of those who was with Jesus took out his sword. And what did he do? He struck the servant of the high priest. His name was Malchus. And what happened? He cut off his ear in an effort to protect Jesus. Interestingly, none of the three gospels mentioned the name of that man. He almost got away with it until John says, yeah, it was Peter. It was Peter. <laughs> but the main point of those accounts of the arrest of Jesus is not the impulsiveness of Peter. The main point is that Jesus had to be arrested and he had to be given over to the authorities to be crucified. Why? Matthew 26 verse 54 gives us the definitive answer. All this has taken place that scripture, that the scripture of the prophets might be what? fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. There's only one explanation as to why Jesus was arrested and given over to the authorities to be crucified. It was written in the scriptures. Therefore it had to come to pass. This my friends is the absoluteness of God's word. So as Peter stands there during this meeting in front of 120 members of the first Baptist church of Jerusalem. 
Peter must have remembered the words of his Lord when he told him, Peter, put your sword back into its place. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be what? Fulfilled that it must be so. Undoubtedly, with a certain degree of grief over the memory of his own lack of faith and understanding, Peter now stands boldly. And it is as though with a renewed confidence, he says, brothers, now I understand. Brothers, now I can see nothing can stop the fulfillment of that which was written. No doubt, Peter would have remembered the words of the Lord when he appeared to them in his resurrected body, as recorded in Luke 24:44, when he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be what? Fulfilled. Do you get the pattern? Eventually, Peter got it. What the word says comes to pass with unquestionable accuracy for the scripture has to be fulfilled. It is absolute. As Martin Luther said in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, he said this, we will not fear for God has willed what? His truth to triumph. God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. God's word is absolute. But there is another conviction in Peter's mind and heart. This is our second one. God's word is supernatural. God's word is supernatural as seen in the divinity of its author, the divinity of its author who wrote this book. That is the question of questions. Uh, let me just put it this way as just to be practical. Some of you are getting ready to go and face the world, go to college. That single question will make a difference. Who wrote this book? Whose word this is? Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. We are here considering the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, as it relates to the production or inspiration of scripture. Some have called this the spirit's preparatory work. What does that mean? Well, it means the work of the Holy Spirit prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Everything that the spirit did in Old Testament times. Notice that Peter refers back to David. David, in this regard, John Owen uh, makes a very significant point here. He said that whatever the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament, and I quote, it had generally and for the most part, if not absolutely and always, 
our respect unto our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so was preparatory unto the completing of the great work of the new creation in and by him. Meaning everything the, the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament was pointing forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. But then Owen very helpfully categorizes the works of the spirit in the Old Testament in two primary categories. According to Owen, first, uh, there is the spirit's work of improvement. By this, he meant the work by which the spirit exalts or improves certain human abilities in order to empower them for certain assignments or role as we see in the Old Testament. For instance, within this category, Owen said that the spirit gave political power political power to kings in the Old Testament. So meaning he gave kings the ability to govern and to rule. And we see that in the Old Testament. The spirit also gave moral fortitude and courage. Additionally, the spirit gave certain people increased physical strength. And we see examples of that. And we even find the spirit giving intellectual gifts to specific men for specific duties. So those are the works of improvement, as John Owen would call them. But then Owen spoke about the extraordinary works of the Spirit in the Old Testament. These works went beyond the natural realm and beyond the works of improvement. These works of the Holy Spirit were a clear demonstration of a supernatural power in the life of God's people. Now, within this category of extraordinary works, Owen includes primarily three subcategories. First, prophecy. Second, the creation of scripture. The creation of scripture. And number three, miracles. For our immediate purposes, I want to give attention to the first two. Namely, the Spirit's work in prophecy and the creation of Scripture. Let us be clear about this, my brothers and sisters. The Bible, or as Peter calls it, the Scripture, is the word of the Spirit. In other words, the Scripture, the book you hold in your hands is absolute because it is also divine in origin. This book we hold in our hands is the very mind of God in inscripturated form. Hence Peter's, Peter's astonishing assertion. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Incredible statement. The scripture was spoken by the spirit. Thus, the scripture is, in a sense, a divine book. Because the spirit is the author. David and the prophets, along with other apostles, were the instruments. But the content is of divine origin. Divine origin. This is the internal testimony of scripture concerning itself. Does the Bible claim to be of divine origins? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. This is what the Bible says about itself. It came from the divine mind of the Spirit. And oh, please don't miss the conviction in Peter's words. Yes, David wrote these words down. There is human instrumentality in the creation of scriptures and prophecy, but the Spirit is the one who produced them 
It is his word. As David himself said in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, David said this about himself. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. Who speaks? The spirit. I'm the instrument, but the one speaking is the spirit. His word, the spirit's word is on my tongue. Even David was aware that what he was speaking through prophecy were not his own words. They came from heaven. John Calvin said, and I quote, we affirm with utter certainty that scripture has flowed to us from the very mouth of God by the ministry of men. So unlike our friends, the meteorologists, the word spoken by the spirit is always true for it originated in the perfect and divine mind who cannot err or deceive or be mistaken. Herein lies the finality, the perfection and the sufficiency of the Bible. It came from the Holy Spirit. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. Therefore, no more revelation is needed. And we, what we have in the word is enough. Brothers and sisters, the main battle that we're fighting in the world boils down to this. Make no mistake about this. The main battle that we are fighting in the world boils down to this. Is this book the word of God. Is this book the very word of God? If this book is the actual inspire divine word of the spirit, then it is enough to rest and build your entire life upon it. This is the reason we preach from the word. This is the, reach, the reason we teach it in Sunday school. We preach it from the pulpit. We take it with us on the mission field and we apply it in counseling. That is the reason. Because we believe it came from above. It is the word of God. Now, that should be enough for us to rest our case and move on. But as if that were not enough, the apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the spirit of God, adds yet another element to his conviction regarding God's word. And this is number three. God's word is powerful. God's word is powerful as demonstrated by the tragic end of Judas. The tragic end of Judas. Now we're moving into illustrations of the power of God. So we have covered so far, number one, that the Bible is what? You have the notes. I literally have already forgot. Absolute. There you go. All right. You saved me. And then number two is supernatural. And number three, it is powerful. Consider with me verse 17 through 20. The first part of verse 20. For he, meaning Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted, allotted his share in this ministry. And now it gets, it's going to get a little graphic, huh? Now this man acquired a field. Who is this man? Judas. With the reward of his wickedness. 
and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. That's interesting. I hope you're not hungry today, but, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is field of blood. First part of verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Now let's go back to meteorologists for a moment. I just like him. And to be fair to them, their words often fail to be fulfilled because of the nature of what they do. And let's not be too harsh, harsh on, on them. In other words, their words fail often because they are dealing with something unpredictable. In fact, the weather is known for its unpredictability. So even though I am often disappointed at them, I'm also sorry for them for they have no control over the weather they are trying to predict. They are simply doing the best they can with the tools they have at their disposal. But not even the best tools can prevent the weather from being absolutely unpredictable. What I'm trying to say is that the weatherman may be able to predict the actions of the weather with a decent percent of accuracy, but the weatherman will never have perfect accuracy because he will never be in control of the weather. He can only predict, but he can never be in control. This is not so with God. This is not so with God. What God says, watch this. God does because God not only predicts the future, God is also in control of the future. God not only knows the future, God also decrees as the catechism says, whatsoever comes to pass. God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. Thus, the power of the word of God is the power of God himself. The power of the word of God is the power of God himself. And the best way to demonstrate this truth beyond a shadow of doubt is by looking at the unfolding of biblical prophecy in actual human history. Peter proves both the absoluteness and the supernatural nature of God's word by pointing to the tragic end of Judas, the betrayer of our Lord Jesus. And he does it in the most astonishing way. In verses 16 through 19, Peter provides a description of what happened to Judas. And then in the first part of verse 20, Peter provides an explanation of what happened to Judas. First, let us consider the description. End of verse 16, Jesus betrayed Judas betrayed Jesus by leading those who arrested the Lord. Verse 17, Judas was appointed to the ministry as a disciple of Jesus. Jesus chose him. Verse 18, Judas, under the influence of Satan, sold himself out to the Pharisees for a small amount of money. What did he do with that money? Well, with that money, Peter says, Judas bought a field for himself and he killed himself. The description of which is quite graphic. There are at least two questions we need to ask at this point. First, did Judas buy that field or did the Pharisees buy that field? 
The reason I ask that is because according to Peter, Judas bought that field. According to the gospel of Matthew, the chief priests bought that field. Well, then who bought that field? The answer is actually both are true. Judas bought that field, but indirectly, indirectly, because it was bought with his own money, which the Bible calls blood money. But the chief priests were the ones who actually made the purchase of the field. The second question is this. Did Judas hang himself, as the Gospels say, or did he fall headlong? Does anybody know? Well, I think I have a, an explanation here. I, I don't think there's a contradiction. The likely explanation is that Judas hanged himself and eventually the rope or the branch on which he was hanging eventually broke and his decomposing and swollen body fell possibly down into a cliff, which would have resulted in a very gory and bloody mess as Peter describes in Acts chapter one. But that is the description of what happened to Judas. He betrayed Jesus and consequently he killed himself. Now let us take a brief moment to consider the explanation as to why this happened to Judas. Why did Judas do all that? Why did he kill himself in the most succinct and straightforward form of the answer is found in verse 20. And here's Peter's undeniable proof of the scripture's power. What does it say at the beginning of verse 20 for it? is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. It is very warm up here. I hope you understand that I'm okay. I'm just sweating a lot, very profusely. <laughs> it normally happens. So the question is, why did Judas, Judas did what he did? The answer, brothers and sisters, is very simple. Because it was written. Written where? In Psalm 69, verse 25. Of course, this psalm was written by David. In it, David pleads with God for deliverance from his enemies. And he was in deep, deep anguish. For instance, in Psalm 69, verse 4, David says, more in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. And then in verse seven, it is for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonors has covered my face. But then the focus turns upon David's enemies in Psalm 69. And we find David saying things like about his enemies. Let their eyes be darkened, all those who are my enemies, so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Strong words. Pour out your indignation upon them. This is David asking the Lord. And let your burning anger overtake them, all my enemies, all those who hate me, says David. And then we come to verse 25 in which David pronounces these, these words upon his enemies. May their camp be a desolation. 
let no one dwell in their tents. Again, David is speaking about his enemies in actual history. He's asking the Lord this about his enemies. In an amazing demonstration of what Christ-centered biblical interpretation looks like, Peter takes this psalm of David, specifically verse 25, and he applies it to Judas. Why? Because Judas, as the betrayer of Jesus, is a representative of all the enemies of God and of God's people. But more importantly, Peter saw Jesus as the ultimate referent of Psalm 69. Thus, Judas, as the enemy of Christ, is the man of whom this psalm was speaking. Amazingly and astonishingly, it came to pass as written. The field purchased with Judas's money in which he also took his own life, eventually became known as Akeldama, meaning field of blood. Not only because it was bought with blood money, but also because it went down in history as a place of desolation, abandonment, and death. Why did all this happen? Because it was written. It was written, and the scripture had to be fulfilled. One single verse, brothers and sisters, one single verse, but it had to be fulfilled. Oh, the power of the written word. So we have seen that Peter affirmed the absoluteness of the word of God, the divinity of the word of God, and the power of the word of God, but he is not done. There is one more conviction we must see. God's word is authoritative, authoritative as indicated by the replacement of Judas, the replacement of Judas. What do we read at the end of verse 20? Let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the heart of all show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The word of God is authoritative by authority. I mean, practical authority an authority that can determine the actions of the people who believe the word. And this is exactly what happened here in the replacement of Judas. You see, he wasn't replaced simply because Peter thought of it in the moment or because he thought it was a good idea. Peter was not improvising or being arbitrary. This particular event of replacing Judas with another man was rooted in biblical authority. To be more specific, the replacement of Judas was rooted in Psalm 109 verse 8 in which we read, 
may his days be few, may another take his office. That is half a verse, half a verse. How did Peter understand and apply that verse in Psalm 109? Simply, Judas needs to be replaced. May another take his office. What we see here is Peter's unwavering commitment to the authority of God's word. Unwavering commitment to the authority of God's word. This decision to replace Judas was not his own decision. He saw it in the book of Psalms. Amazingly, Peter is bound to the authority of the Old Testament to such a degree that half a verse is enough to dictate how they should proceed with the establishment of the foundation of the church. And so they did. And what happens? Judas was replaced with Matthias. We don't know much about him, but according to this passage, he met the requirements what were the requirements? Well, Matthias was an eyewitness to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ and also of his resurrection. But the decision was the Lord's. The casting of lots was most likely a reference to small objects that were somewhat common in the Old Testament to determine God's will for specific occasions. The replacement of Judah was a very unique moment in the history of the church and therefore called for unique measures. This was done to fill the apostolic role that Judas had left empty. But we don't see the casting of lots anymore in the New Testament ever again. It was a very unique time with a unique need that was met in a very unique way. Plus, it was the Lord Jesus who chose the 12 during his earthly ministry. Why would that decision fall on anyone else now that he is risen? Certainly, so Peter thought, it was the Lord's choice before. It has to be the Lord's choice now. So the Lord then being in control of the lots and this being an unprecedented time in history chose Matthias to replace Judas and keeps the 12 Apostles. Why 12 apostles? Well, because the number 12 represented continuity with the history of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. By calling 12 apostles, the Lord Jesus was showing that the church was in harmony, in continuity with Israel. Thus, Jesus sovereignly established the 12 again, showing us that not even a betrayal can stop Jesus from accomplishing his purposes and building his church. So we have walked through this passage of scripture briefly. Now, let me give you a few practical lessons that we learn from this. The first practical lesson that we learn from this passage is very straightforward. The church is built upon the word of God alone. The church is built Upon the word of God alone. Sola scriptura or scripture alone is not just a reformation principle captive to the 16th century. The reformers were not being innovative by preaching sola scriptura or scripture alone. Sola scriptura goes all the way back to the early church. And it reaches even into our day. 
Peter stood upon the authority of God's word alone. And this is where the church is built. The second practical lesson is this. Convictional leadership matters. Convictional leadership matters. There is a well-known contemporary pastor of a huge church um, in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm not going to give you his name because I don't think Andy Stanley would appreciate that. So I'm not going to give you his name. I'm not going to tell you who he is. But there's a well-known pastor who is calling us to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We need to start focusing on the resurrection of Jesus, the event of the resurrection, rather than on a text. In fact, he says that our faith is not built upon a text, but upon an event, namely the resurrection. Obviously, I agree that apart from the resurrection, our faith is futile. But make no mistake about it. You cannot separate the event from the text. Why? Because you cannot separate the resurrection of the Lord from the word of the Lord. After all, faith comes not by seeing an event, but by hearing a message. And this message, brothers and sisters, is written. Is written. Believers don't need pastors telling them to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament or the biblical text. The need of the moment is for pastors to be instilling in their people greater and greater and greater confidence in the word of God, not less. What would have happened if Peter would have unhitched himself from the Old Testament during this moment? No, Peter did not unhitch himself from the Old Testament. He went right into it. In fact, as we will see, much of the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts was rooted in Old Testament promises. Our calling is not to unhitch ourselves from the text, but to fetter ourselves firmly to the text of Scripture. This is the objective word of God. And this is what we need. Number three. The apostolic ministry was thoroughly Christ-centered. The apostolic ministry was thoroughly Christ-centered, both in their interpretation of Scripture and in their proclamation of the gospel. Christ was always at the very center of everything that the apostles did. Peter saw Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament, and the apostles were called to be witnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Likewise, Christian ministry today must be thoroughly Christ-centered, both in our interpretation and proclamation of the gospel and of the Bible. This is our central duty Christ is the key to understanding scripture and Christ is the content of Christian ministry. 
Jesus is the Savior and the one in whom the Father has accomplished our redemption, our reconciliation, our sanctification, and even our future glorification. The single most important question for any church is this. Are we making much of the Lord Jesus Christ? The apostles did. Are we? Next. Here's another practical lesson, and we're almost done. To believe the word is to believe God himself. Do you realize that the opposite is also true? To deny the word is to call God a liar. As B.B. Warfield said, what the Bible says, God says. The Holy Spirit spoke the written word into existence through human writers. God is the author of the Bible. This conviction comes with a massive implication, and it is this. The Bible reflects the character of God himself. Therefore, to question the Bible is to question God himself. And finally... The final practical lesson is this. Oh, you don't want to miss this. What the scripture says about us, guess what? Must be, what is the word at the moment? Fulfilled. What the scripture says about you must be fulfilled. Do you realize that the scripture says something about all of us? without exceptions. In John chapter three, verse 36, the scripture says, whoever believes in the son, the Lord Jesus has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The scripture must be fulfilled in all of us. In all of us, no exception. So if you don't believe in Jesus, you will not see life, but only God's wrath. Unless you repent of your sins and believe in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But the scripture has to be fulfilled. I finish with this. The force of this statement of Acts 1.16, that the scripture has to be fulfilled, can be seen in its greater, greatest light as we consider the words of Genesis 3.15, coming to perfect fruition in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who through his death crushed the serpent's head. Now, between the promise given in Genesis 3.15 and the actual fulfillment in the New Testament, thousands of years had elapsed. History continued to take its course under the providential hand of God. But what God spoke had to be fulfilled. And everything God has said will be fulfilled. Those who die without faith in Christ will see wrath. Because the Bible must be fulfilled. And those who die in faith in Christ will see life. 
Either way, the scripture will be fulfilled in you. The scripture will be fulfilled in me. So the call today is believe the word of God. Trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus and you will see life. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this simple yet important reminder that what we have in our hands, this book, is indeed your word. It is powerful to accomplish what it says. It is authoritative over our lives. It is inspired by the Spirit himself. And it will be fulfilled. So as we go into the world, as we interact with neighbors, co-workers, friends, help us, Lord, to hold to this conviction as Peter did. That everything that the scripture says is true and it must be fulfilled. That those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are forgiven of their sins and are promised eternal life. So I pray, Lord, that the message that has gone forth this morning will make its impact. And we know that your word will never return void. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.